Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Steve Schaefer of the Houston Chronicle with Astros beat writer Chandler Rome. And Chandler, opening day is upon us after an eventful offseason of no activity on the baseball front because of the lockout and then a lot of activity within the last few and a half weeks. You're back from West Palm Beach en route to Anaheim for Thursday night's opener. What are your general impressions of an Astros team that is trying to get to the World Series for the second time, the American League championship, uh, win an American League pennant for the fourth time, and get to the LCS for the sixth consecutive time in a six-year period? Yeah, it was a pretty normal camp. And that's something that we haven't been able to say about the Astros, especially since 2019 when the scandal came out and kind of everything happened. It was a relatively normal spring training, albeit truncated. It was only four weeks long. Dusty Baker um, was very vocal that spring training was too short. Um, I would expect to hear some similar sentiments to that if and when the Astros lose some games on this first road trip. Dusty Baker is, was not happy with the length of spring training. He needed more time to get his regulars some uh, some at-bats. What they really ran into a little bit was they didn't have enough innings for the pitchers um, because you're trying to build pitchers up. You're trying to get relievers into games, and, and they just ran out of innings. And couple with that, they had one game completely canceled when a, a horrific thunderstorm rolled through West Palm Beach. They couldn't play one day, so that only compounded matters. There were no split squads, so not enough innings to get pitchers going. Um, but all in all, the, the team looks about what we expected them to look like. And I know we'll talk about Lance McCullers Jr. here in a little bit, but he's really the only injury that popped up in camp. The Astros are relatively healthy um, going, into, going into the regular season, which is um, – Certainly something that not a lot of other teams can say because of the shortened camp. You saw a lot of soft tissue injuries. Um, you saw a lot of pitchers maybe reporting with some stuff. The Astros had none of that. Um, the Carlos Correa specter is gone. He is with the Minnesota Twins. He was That was kind of the weird uh, vibe the first week of camp when Carlos Correa was remained unsigned. Uh, it seemed like every interview with a core player, Correa came up in some way. And then when he finally went to the Twins, you kind of just felt everyone just kind of be like, all right, let, let's let's get back to normal. Let's let's just get the camp going. And that's what they did. And um, certainly this is not I, I don't believe a super team. I don't think we're going to see this team win 100 games. I don't think this is a team a la 2017 to 2019, those teams that just rolled to division titles by 15, 20 games, won 103, 104 games. This isn't that team, but they're, they're still on paper. They're still the best team in the division, and they should be favored to not only win the division, but uh, get into the playoffs and make some noise. The American League West is going to be interesting and somewhat different this year. Really, the, the Astros' main rival the last couple of years has been the Oakland A's, and I'm not sure that the ink had dried on the new collective bargaining agreement before Oakland started tanking this year. They traded Matt Olson. They traded Matt Chapman this past week, and they traded uh, pitcher Sean Manaya. But when you look at the other clubs in the American League West, the Texas Rangers were the biggest spenders of the offseason, getting Corey Seager and Marcus Simeon. The Angels have the most valuable player in Shohei Otani. They hope to have a healthy Mike Trout back, a healthy Anthony Rendon back. And the Mariners, who've kind of flirted with contention the last couple of years, they just announced that Julio Rodriguez will be on their opening day squad. It seems like they are wanting to contend this year. How do you see this division race shaping up? Yeah, I thought the offseason was very interesting because it, it seems like with the action that these teams took, especially the teams you mentioned, it seems like they think they have a shot. They think they have a shot to, I don't know about dethrone the Astros, but certainly compete with them. And that's not something that I think a lot of people in this division have thought for the last three or four or five years. 
Certainly with the playoffs expanding, um, that would help one of these teams be um, possibly a playoff contender. You look at what the Mariners did last year. You can't argue with the results. They won 90 games. Their last game of the season meant something. They lost it and didn't get into the playoffs. But that team last year, if you kind of look at their run differential, if you look at everything, they were probably not supposed to be as good as they were. They overperformed every sort of underlying metric, every sort of expectation. They went out this year and they and they put together a squad that on paper should win 90 games. That this is a this is a good club. That they went and got um, Robbie Ray. They they traded for Jesse Winker and Eugenio Suarez. Um, they're they you mentioned Julio Rodriguez. Jared Kalanick cannot be worse than he was last year, so he's probably going to take a step forward. So this is a club on paper that could certainly challenge the Astros, but I think their main competition will be their opening day opponent. And that's the angels. And it seems like we say this every year with the angels that you look at their lineup and you mentioned Rendon trout, Otani, um, three of the best players in the division, not only in the division in baseball, and they signed Noah Syndergaard this off season. They got a ton of bullpen help. Their bullpen is probably, it could be the best bullpen in the division. Um, the question with the Angels, as it's been for the last five to seven years, is do they have enough pitching? Do they have enough competent pitching to be able to dethrone the Astros? And, you know, Noah Syndergaard is a lot in the same position as Justin Verlander coming off of Tommy John surgery. You could see his innings limited a little bit. You wonder if Shohei Otani can replicate what he did last year both ways um, on the mound and at the plate. Um, but beyond those two, you have to wonder. You know, they have Jose Suarez. They have... Griffin Canning, they have Reed Detmers, a rookie who's looked very good. They have Patrick Sandoval, a former Astros farmhand, but not a lot of just proven depth. So if those guys, if the back end of the rotation can take a step forward, it's certainly a team that that is formidable enough to challenge the Astros. But I, I'm I, I am done predicting anything that the Angels are going to do. I, I've fallen in love with them too many times the last couple of years, thinking that this was going to be the year, and, and it never happens. So. Um, until they actually do it, uh, I'll be skeptical. But uh, I think if one team can legitimately challenge the Astros, it's got to be the Angels. And it's interesting this year because of the change in playoff format. You're beyond winning the division. You are incentivized to win as many as you can uh, unless, until you've at least clinched the second best record because that, that one division winner with the third best record is going to have to play in the division series uh, or in the, that wild card round against one of the three wild card teams, and the other two will kind of get will get this first round by. You talk about the pitching, and let's look at the Astros' depth. I wonder if that's the one area where they they have an edge if they can stay somewhat healthy because they do have a lot of experienced starters. It's a day and age where things have changed dramatically. You know, last year you mentioned Robbie Ray; he led the American League with 193 innings last year. There were only four National League pitchers who threw 200, so it seems like innings counts continue to diminish. Part of that might have been a result of the pandemic season. Pitchers weren't ramped up, and now you've got another short spring training. But what do you think about the Astros pitching depth? At this point, you mentioned McCullers isn't going to be there, certainly out of the shoot, but do they have enough arms to compensate? I certainly think they do. Um, Now, whether they can live up to what they've done in the past is certainly a question mark. You know, Justin Verlander, uh, I, I... I never doubt Justin Verlander, but he's also 39 years old coming off of Tommy John surgery. He's trying to do something that really no one's ever done, and that's pitch at this age after going undergoing Tommy John surgery and trying to be a workhorse fifth day, every fifth day starter. You know, he's made no bones about it that 
He's going to be honest with the Astros training staff and doctors. And if he feels like he needs a blow and if he feels like he's got to skip his turn in the rotation, he will. But he has been open and saying, you know, no one has put an innings limit on me because I'm going to listen to my body. And this is normally, you know, in today's day and age, when a pitcher is coming off of Tommy John, it's normally not even a question. They're going to have an innings limit of some sort um, going into that next season. That, that's not the case for Justin Verlander. Um, the timing of his surgery is fortuitous because he had it in, in on September 31st of 2020. So he will be 18 months and nine days out of surgery when he makes his first start on Saturday in Anaheim. And if you talk to Tommy John recipients, you usually start to feel the best at that 14 to 16 month mark. So he is far enough out, I think, to where maybe any lingering effects of what he had or, or lingering effects of the surgery or the buildup or the rehab, I, I, I would tend to think they're going to be behind him. But he's also 39 years old. He's defied age for so long. But at some point, you are what your birth certificate says you are. He's 39 years old. Older bodies take longer to heal than younger bodies, and you don't know how he's going to respond. So, again, you never doubt him, but um, I maybe would hesitate to say he's going to go out there and throw 200 innings this year. And then really behind him, it's a lot of kind of unknown. You mentioned, you know, they don't have McCullers, and uh, he gave you 180 innings last year and was really, really good in the innings he gave you. Um, but you're going to get Fromber Valdez, who's going to start an opening day, Again, the consistency with him has just not been there. He was unbelievable um, for flashes of last year. He'd go through these stretches um, where he was unbelievable, and then you saw in the World Series what happened. He just he he melted down on a on a big stage, and there have been times like that where his walk rate fluctuates, and you, you never you never know with Fromber what you're going to get when you come to the ballpark. And I think that's what the Astros are missing in the rotation completely. Um, Verlander, notwithstanding you really don't know what you're going to get out of these starters when they come to the ballpark. Now, most times, more often than not, they're going to be good because their track record suggests, you know, they don't have any six, five or six ERA guys in this rotation. They've got a bunch of average to above average starting pitchers in this rotation. It's just no one that you can put. It's just no one that you can put atop the rotation. Say, we know when we go to the ballpark today, he's going to give us seven innings of two run ball. But the counter would be, does any team have that? Uh, I mean, maybe aside from the New York Mets who have Scherzer and DeGrom atop the rotation, maybe aside from the Dodgers who have Kershaw and Bueller, there's just not that in baseball anymore. So, you know, they've got enough depth between Valdez, between Urquidy, Garcia. Uh, Jake Odorizzi, I think, is going to be an X factor for this team, especially with McCullers being out. You know, he needs to absorb some of the innings that Zach Grinke threw last year. I know Zach Grinke wasn't good. Um, in the second half of last year, but the innings he threw, he threw, you know, the bulk of the innings he threw, they're going to need someone to kind of absorb that. And I think that's Jake Odorizzi's job. And, you know, he, he gets vilified by Astros fans for what he said toward the end of last year. And a lot of Astros fans don't like him very much, but I mean, this guy is an average starting pitcher. This guy is a league average pitcher that really can be an asset if he's on. And if he, has a normal buildup and a normal spring training, which he did have this go around. So there is enough depth here to compensate for um, Lance McCullers' injury, but you also have to kind of, you're always one injury away. You're always one bad start away from having no depth. And, you know, if you'd asked me before spring training, I'd have said that the Astros starting pitching depth was the strength of this team. And then we get to camp and we find out McCullers is out. 
you know, and then you kind of start going down the rabbit hole here and, um, you know, it, it could go sideways, but I, I do think, you know, overall, it's probably one of the biggest strengths of this team is its, is its depth uh, in the rotation. I would uh, point our listeners to, uh, on the topic of Verlander, you had an outstanding article uh, that's already at HoustonChronicle.com about some of the decisions he had to weigh and his whole Tommy John process, and um, it'll be in the pages of the Chronicle on uh, Wednesday. But uh, And as you talk about predictions, there's no way to predict how this is going to go. Verlander could win 7, 20, who knows. But I would ask you, you got to spend some time with him last week. What is his demeanor like? Do you feel like this is the same Justin Verlander in terms of attitude yes like nothing has changed attitude wise this is still a guy that is super competitive that um wants the ball every fifth day i do think he's got a little bit more perspective um you know being away from the game for 18 months um he watched his daughter grow up to become a a three-year-old little girl from a baby and you know he's fatherhood he says has given him a new kind of perspective you know he, he talked about how when he was away from the game, he didn't watch much baseball because he said he couldn't kind of handle it. He couldn't handle kind of just being confined to his couch or wherever he was watching baseball. I thought he'd drive himself nuts. So I think being away from the game has given him a little bit more perspective. And I also think, you know, he is serious about being honest with the Astros training staff and being honest with doctors and coaches if, you know, he does start to feel a little bit um, fatigued if there's any side effects um, in this first season back because and that's not um, that's uh, the reason he's going to be like that is because he still has the same desire to pitch until he's 45. I mean this is not he has made it known this is not his last contract. Um, he, he's got a one-year deal with a player option for 2023 that'll kick in if he throws 130 innings this year. Um, this is not his last contract. I don't know where his next contract will be but if if you talk to Justin Verlander, this was not a surgery that he underwent just to come back and, you know, kind of do a, a final tour, a final farewell tour, if you will. He wouldn't have put as much blood, sweat, and tears into the rehab process, which is a grueling, isolating process to rehab from Tommy John surgery. It really is. He wouldn't have done all that if he's going to go out in two or three years. This is a guy that wants to keep pitching. He's 39 right now. He's always said he wants to pitch until he's 45. That demeanor hasn't changed. His bulldog mentality hasn't changed. And quite frankly, neither is his stuff. I mean, in spring training, he was 94 to 96 with his fastball. All his secondary pitches looked good. There, there were times where he couldn't get synced up. There were times where the mechanics were off a little bit. And that's just kind of having to readjust and kind of having to get back into the swing of things at the major league level. But, you know, everything in spring training, I guess the, the most the biggest thing you can take away from Justin Verlander's spring training he came out healthy and nothing went wrong, which I think were two of the big things you want to check off. He made all of his starts. Um, he reported no soreness, no fatigue, no anything. He's ready to go. And, you know, the Astros have their ace back atop the rotation. Well, I love the fact that he still wants to pitch till he's 45. You know, we kind of almost, I remember when Tom said that, I want to be a quarterback till I'm 45. He kind of, well, perfect world. And yet here he is and he's, he's still back. I'm not counting Justin Verlander out from getting to 45. Let's talk about the offense a little bit for the Astros. Last year, they still were successful. They showed that they could absorb the loss of George Springer. Another big loss this year with Carlos Correa. I guess before we get into that, we have not had a podcast discussing this, but a lot of people are curious. The Astros made a five-year, $160 million offer to Correa after the season. And then during the lockout, it was kind of like, well, let's see what happens. Do they move? He says they never really got back to him. 
any your impressions of what happened in terms of because I think a lot of people didn't begrudge that he was going to leave for some monster deal somewhere, but he got this relatively modest deal from the Twins. While it does have the highest average annual value, it's only a three-year contract with opt-outs. Why is he not an Astro again? That's a great question, and it's a question I'd love to ask owner Jim Crane, who um, had no problem going on the record with other reporters during Correa's free agency, um, but when Correa went elsewhere, has decided to stay quiet. Um, my my impression is that they never intended to sign him, is that the five years for $160 million, the offer that they made him uh, after the World Series was going to be their best offer, and they weren't going to move from it. And I think it's I think it's important to kind of separate the dynamics here and kind of how things changed. So if you look at the deal Correa signed, um, the the three years, 105.3 million with a $35.1 million AAV um, this year, and then an opt out uh, for the, after the, each of the next two seasons, you may ask yourself, well, why didn't he take five for 160 um, when the Astros offered him um, right after the world series? You have to remember that at that point, Everyone in the industry, everyone in baseball thought Carlos Correa was getting a 10-year deal. He was going to get 10 years for 320-something million dollars. He was going to get Francisco Lindor money. He was going to get up into that echelon. Corey Seager signed with the Rangers for 10 years, $325 million. Carlos Correa is a better player than Corey Seager. Everyone in the industry thought that this was going to be the big, long contract Correa was going to get. The lockout happened. Uh, Correa switched agents. He hired Scott Boris during the lockout and fired WME. And then, you know, when the lockout ended, it it drug on, you know, I I don't know if anyone could have predicted how long it was going to drag on, but I think just within the industry, I think it went a little bit longer than some people thought. And when the lockout ended, it became very clear that Carlos Correa was not going to get the big deal the 10-year deal, the 12-year deal. Scott Boris acknowledged that. Carlos Correa acknowledged that, that he was not going to get it after the lockout. The dynamics had changed. They had a quick ramp up in spring training. Um, Owners just were not as willing to do that with so much going on and such a quick turnaround to get into camp. So with that in mind, you know, you would think that the Astros would have you know, James Click and Jim Crane would have gotten together and, you know, revised their offer, come up with a new offer. Um, the, a new offer, one that Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic reported was coming, never actually came. Carlos Correa told me on the record that the Astros did not offer him um, after the lockout. So the only offer he received from the Astros was five for 160. And then, you know, you may ask yourself, why did he take the Twins off? Well, there's a couple reasons. You know, one is the opt-outs after this season and next season are big for him because Carlos Correa still wants the 10-year deal. He still wants the Corey Seager, the Francisco Lindor type deal. He is more likely to get that next winter in free agency. So if he has a good season this year, he's going to opt out of that contract with the Twins, and he's going to go back into free agency and try to get that big, long contract that he wants. He'll still be the youngest free agent shortstop out there next year. Um, the competition will still be pretty stiff um, with other shortstops in the market, with Xander Bogarts maybe in the market. Trey Turner will be there. Tim Anderson could be there. So, But he still would probably be the best. He'll definitely be the youngest. Uh, you could debate whether he or Trey Turner, who would be the best in that uh, of that free agent shortstop market. But the, the, 
the likelihood of him getting a big deal increases tenfold next next winter. Whether the Astros didn't want to include the opt-outs, whether they're firmly against opt-outs, I have no idea. That's a question I'd love to ask Jim Crane. Um, he has not made himself available. That's a question that James Click has been asked, and he basically refuses to answer it. Um, I, I don't know. Um, what I do know is Carlos Correa made it as abundantly clear as he could from last March on that he wanted to come back, that he wanted to be with the Astros, that he wanted – I mean, he went on a team radio show and said he wanted to be an Astro for life. But this is also a guy that's really smart. I mean, he, he understands his market value. He understands, he, and Martin Maldonado said it best, you know, this guy understands the business of the game probably better than most give him credit for. Um, he knew exactly what he was doing. And I think if the Astros, honestly, I think if the Astros would have offered him something similar to the Twins, I think he would have taken it. Um, you know, you may be asking yourself, well, why did he go to a Twins team that, is not going to win the American League Central, barring some something really unforeseen. You know, this is not a team that's really in the playoff hunt. Well, you know what? If they're not in the playoff hunt, come you know maybe July fifth, the MLB trade deadline is August second, and the most valuable trade chip out there if the Twins are out of contention will be Carlos Correa. You know, there's a very good possibility he could get moved somewhere to a championship contender where he could go do what he does best. You've seen um, Astros fans saw it all along. What he does in the playoffs, he's a he rises to the occasion in the playoffs, and he he understands that. So why is he not an Astro? I really don't have a good answer for it. It's one of these situations where you look at the contract and, and you wonder why the Astros didn't do it. They've done something similar to this with Justin Verlander three years ago. They gave him a two-year extension for $66 million, a $33 million average annual value in both years of that deal. He made one start during that extension because he blew out and had Tommy John surgery in the, after the first start of his of that extension. So it didn't work out for him. I don't know if that was a if that scared them off. You know, Carlos Correa has had back issues before. I'm not sure if they saw something in his physical. You know, I don't know. These are things I don't know the answer to. But I do know he's not in the Astros clubhouse anymore. Um, I think Jeremy Pena can certainly. Um, come in and play serviceably well. I think he can be a a good everyday player, but um, he's no Carlos Correa. Uh, speaking of pain, you, you've seen him in camp uh, for a few of these weeks now, and um, it's always best to know, hey, this is spring training. Let's temper all expectations. But he, he did have a good showing with Sugarland last year, um, his first run at AAA. Uh, what do you think he will provide for the Astros? Is, is, do you think he's the type that, Maybe this is a fair question to ask in April, but is he going to hold this job? I mean, um, it seems like he's uh, like raising. He's another shortstop with a good head on his shoulders. Uh, what have you been in your impressions of Jeremy Pena, who's really stepping into a large void? Yeah, I don't think the situation is going to overwhelm him. Um, you talk to him and you kind of look at his demeanor. He was kind of built for this. Like, he, you can tell from the minute you meet him, he's the son of a former ball player. His dad, Geronimo Pena, played for about 12 years, um, most notably with the Cardinals in the 80s and 90s. Um, he grew up around the game. Um, I, I'm not comparing him stylistically on the field to this guy, but there's a lot of Michael Brantley vibes I get from him, just kind of in the, in the, in the face, in the demeanor, in the way he goes about things, in the way he conducts interviews, everything. There's a very Brantley-esque vibe to him of just everything is pretty straightforward, professional. 
Um, this is a mature kid for, for being someone that doesn't have any big league service time. I mean, he's 24. Um, calling him a kid is probably um, an insult to him. But, you know, this is a guy that I don't think he's coming in here trying to be Carlos Correa. He said as much. You know, he's not trying to be Carlos Correa. He's trying to be Jeremy Pena. Um, I think he'll be fine defensively. Actually, I think he'll be above average defensively. I don't think anyone's as good as Correa. I think Correa is the best defensive shortstop in baseball. He's the best defensive shortstop I've ever seen, but I'm pretty young, so I don't know that that plot it means a lot. But he's really, really good. Um, Pena is going to be above average. You know, Will he make every play Carlos Correa made? No. Um, but he's going to make all the routine plays. He's going to make some spectacular plays here and there, but he's going to he's going to hold the position very well. I think the biggest thing that the Astros have to be concerned about is is his hit tool going to translate. And you mentioned that he performed well in Sugarland last year. That was a very small sample size. He played 30 games in Sugarland last year, took 133 plate appearances. Now, he did have 16 extra base hits in those 133 plate appearances, so you can't argue with the results. He, he slugged very well in a pitcher's park, too, in, in Sugarland. So, you know, but it's such a small sample size, and scouts across the game have questioned whether his hit tool will translate. And this is also a guy that has only played 30 games in AAA those are the only 30 games he's played above high A. He skipped over double A completely. This is not a guy that's had a ton of minor league experience. And part of that is not his fault. You know, obviously he had the COVID season in 2020 where no minor leaguers played. And then last year he fractured his wrist while diving for a ball, was out for four months, came back, and that's when he went to Sugarland in September. So he just hasn't played very much. He's played a little bit in Dominican winter ball and done well in there in the last two years. But um there's a lot of unknown there. I mean, there's a lot of trust being put into a guy that, you know, has performed at the minor league level, but it's been a very small sample size. So um, the outlook for him, you know, I don't think, again, I don't think it's going to overwhelm him. I don't think he's going to be one of these guys that looks completely overmatched. Um, I don't think, I, I can't envision a situation where he struggles so badly that he has to get sent down to the minor leagues. I, I just can't envision that happening. You know, the Astros have too much faith in him, and there have been there's been no talk of that either. Like Dusty Baker, before Carlos Correa even signed elsewhere, Dusty Baker came out and said Jeremy Pena is the front runner. He's going to be my shortstop, and they have put that confidence in him. They're going to give him a pretty long leash here, so he would have to really, really perform poorly uh, for the Astros to make any sort of a move. But um, I think he's faster than a, little, than a lot of people think. So if he gets on base, maybe he could be a threat on base. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see where Dusty hits him in the lineup. Uh, I think hitting him ninth may be um, something to look at because he'll have protection with Altuve hitting first. Um, if you hit him eighth and you got Martin Maldonado behind him, he's really got no protection there in the order. So I wonder if you could see him maybe start the start the uh, year hitting ninth, have Altuve protecting him in the leadoff spot. So um, there's a lot of different ways uh, you can kind of talk about him, but I think he's going to be good. Um, is he going to be Carlos Correa? No, but nobody is. Dusty hasn't really given us a final indication what that lineup's going to look like, so we are speculating a little bit. But um, it's not like the Astros don't have other hitters on hand, certainly. They had the the two that uh, top two hitters in the American League batting average-wise, Julie Gurriel and Michael Brantley, last year. And while neither of them provides a ton of power, there is something to be said for making contact in this day and age, and both of them do that exceptionally well. Still Altuve, uh, you've got Kyle Tucker, Jordan Alvarez. 
Alex Bregman, maybe a little bit of a wild card. I know you talked to him recently. Uh, what do you think of the lineup in general? It seems to me that the Astros are still going to score their fair share of runs. Yeah, and it's why I think the Jeremy Pena hit tool debate is a little bit uh, – we don't need to talk about it yet because their top six hitters are really good. They don't need Jeremy Pena to come in here and have a 1,000 OPS. They don't even need him to come in here and have an 800 OPS. Just come in here and be – around a league average hitter, maybe a tick below a league average hitter, and I think they'd be ecstatic. That's because, you know, the top of their lineup is so good. Um, Kyle Tucker and Jordan Alvarez, um, they both – I don't know if Alvarez needed to break out. I think he broke out as a rookie, but I think last year he really cemented himself. You know, you saw him play almost every day. He had a full season under his belt. He was healthy. Um, he established himself as one of the game's feared power hitters, and, you know, I think Kyle Tucker – is the best player in baseball that nobody's talking about. And I think it's honestly just because he started off so poorly last year. But if you look at his stats, maybe after, I think, May 15th, um, there were few players in baseball better than him. And I really think, you know, we, we mentioned Dusty in the lineup. You know, I think you're seeing kind of where they're thinking because the last two or three Grapefruit League games, they hit Kyle Tucker second. And I think if you get him up in that order – the, uh, the top two or three in that order, I think that really helps this lineup maximize its value because you give Kyle Tucker more at-bats, and he needs more at-bats, especially as a power guy, someone that can go gap-to-gap. Gap. Um, you mentioned Alex Bregman. I, I think his, I think he's a huge key here. Um, he has not been the 2019 Alex Bregman for a long time, and there are a lot of different reasons for that. You know, look, you cannot discount the injuries, um, he's had hamstring problems. He's had quad problems. And then you obviously saw in the World Series last year how compromised he was with his wrist being hurt. Um, other, th- But there are some other metrics, though, that, that and he's even acknowledged that it, it's not all the injuries. He's flying open in his swing. He's hitting the ball on the ground far too much. Um, and for him, hitting the ball on the ground is not good because, you know, it's obvious that he doesn't run well. And I mean, the times he's tried to run, you know, he's strained his hamstring and he's done something to his quad. You know, running is not what he needs to be doing. So hitting the ball on the ground is not ideal for Alex Bregman. So he's got to find a way to get his contact point better, to not maybe jump at the ball. He's he's talked about, you know, the last two years, he's felt like he's been jumping at the ball. And part of that may be compensating for the injuries. You know, he played through the wrist um, in September last year, he came back from the hamstring injury. He came back from the quad injury. Maybe he was compensating, and that altered his mechanics a little bit. But they need Alex Bregman to get back near 2019, 2018 Alex Bregman. Now, look, 2019 Alex Bregman slugged 592 and had a 1015 OPS. I don't know that those numbers are repeatable. Like I don't know that he can get back there. But, you know, last year he had a 777 OPS. He had an 801 OPS in 2020. Now, factor in, you know, the small sample size, the the injuries and everything. You know, look, he has still been an above average hitter. He's got a 114 OPS plus since 2019, and the league average is 100. You know, this is still a guy. He has not been bad, and I think that's kind of been the narrative that um, some people are trying to perpetuate. No, this he has not been a bad player. He just hasn't been an otherworldly superstar. Now, do they need him to be an otherworldly superstar in this lineup? I don't think so. I think they just need him to maybe hit for a little bit more power, hit some balls out of the ballpark, hit some balls into the gap, because that is one thing, especially with Correa leaving. You know, the Astros don't have a ton of right-handed power. 
you know, Jose Altuve obviously matched his career high with 31 home runs last year, but he told me in spring training, and this was written uh, in the middle of March, that he did not like his approach last year. He said he pulled the ball far too much. He said he sold out for home runs, and he didn't like that. He said he wants to go back to, you know, maybe using all fields a little bit better, um, being more of a hitter than a home run guy. He was going up there and selling out, trying to hit the ball to the ballpark. And that's not to say Jose Altuve is not going to hit home runs. It's just to say that that's not he doesn't want that to be the focal point of his game. And you mentioned that Yuli Gurriel, he's never been a power threat. You know, Michael Brantley is a guy that puts the ball in play, contact. So that leaves really Alex Bregman as the guy that I think needs to take a step power-wise. And again, I'm not sitting here saying he needs to slug 592 for the Astros to be really good, but he's got to up the power a little bit from the last two years. I think that would really help this lineup and turn it from one that, you know, I still think this is an elite lineup. I don't think it's like a, I don't think this is like the 2019 lineup where you just look at it and you're like, this is the best lineup I've ever seen. Like, I think it could be elite, but I think the way for it to get to that surefire elite status is Alex Bregman getting back to the form he was in in 2018. It'll be interesting to see how much Tucker and Alvarez progress. They're still young in their careers, and and that's going to be a big lift too. One piece we haven't talked about, and you you talked about how they were healthy in camp. One piece they knew wasn't going to be in camp was Jake Myers in center field. And um, you get the impression that he's the guy they figure is going to be their center fielder uh, long-term or at least long-term this season once he gets back. Was hurt against the White Sox. Uh, seems like McCullers' timeline might be a little hard to peg at this point, but is there a timeline on when Myers might be ready to, to come back? Well, he certainly will not contribute in April. Uh, James Click said that at the end of spring training. Um, I would think, and again, I don't want to guess here because I'm going to guess and people are going to hold me to it, but certainly if he's not coming back in April, that would lead you to believe that Maybe he can get out on a rehab assignment sometime in May, and he's going to have to play a little bit on the rehab assignment. I don't think this is going to be a thing where he plays, you know, one or two games and is ready to come back up. I think he's going to have to play, you know, maybe six or seven games, see a bunch of pitching, get comfortable out there in center field uh, to to feel like he's ready to come back. So maybe a best case scenario you could see late May, early June with him. Um, in the interim, I think it's interesting. I think it'll be interesting to see how Dusty manages the center field job. Um, He's been very vocal that he has not enjoyed Chaz McCormick uh, spring training performance. And you saw how he went last year in the World Series with Jose Siri. It's pretty clear that Dusty Baker has a, a pretty big affinity for Jose Siri. So I wouldn't be surprised if Siri gets a lion's share of the starts. But, you know, Chaz McCormick, I think, profiles better offensively. Certainly Siri's a better defender, but, you know, McCormick profiles better offensively. And, you kind of know what you're going to get with him. With Jose Siri, you really know, he's so unpredictable and he plays such a frenetic, frazzled style out there. You kind of never know what you're going to get with him. So I think maybe going with the sure thing in McCormick is probably the way to go, but I think Dusty may lean towards Siri. And finally, we haven't talked about the bullpen. I guess I should cover that one area because it does become increasingly important um, considering starters not going as deep. But uh, how do you think the bullpen looks? Ryan Presley coming off another solid year, and uh, the Astros losing Kendall Graveman, who they acquired at the trade deadline last year, but they've got Maton, who they got for straw. What, what do you see at the uh, in the relief core this year? I think the back end will be okay. Like you mentioned, you know, Presley and Stanek. Stanek looked really, really good this spring. You know, Again, you don't want to overreact to spring training stats, but I thought Ryan Stanek threw the ball exceptionally well in spring you know they think Hector Neris is certainly a guy that's going to slide in to, to be a back-end guy 
Phil Maton was probably their best reliever in the World Series last year. You're gonna see, you'll see if that carries over. So I think with those four guys, you kind of have the back end figured out. Um, middle relief, I'm not sure about, but I don't know that any team's really you know sold on its middle relief core. Um, Pedro Baez looks like a shell of himself. I'm not sure how long he's going to be able to stick on the major league roster with the stuff he has. He kind of had to make the opening day roster just because of his contract status and the money they paid him, but. He's throwing 87 to 89 miles an hour. He was getting lit up in, in Grapefruit League games. I, I'm just not sure how long they're going to be able to keep him around. Um, Rafael Montero's a big wild card. And then, you know, they've got a couple of young guys they're excited about. Brian Abreu, who you know a lot about. But I think somebody that not a lot of fans know about that made the opening day roster is Ronald Blanco, 28-year-old rookie. Um, that'll make his first opening day roster. If the if there was a Rule 5 draft this winter, he would not have been um, in Astros camp. Another team would have selected him in the Rule 5 draft, but the Astros got lucky because of the lockout. The league canceled the Rule 5 draft. Ronel Blanco came to spring training, performed exceptionally well, and won the final spot in the bullpen. Um, he's another guy that can get it up there to 96, 97 miles an hour, has a good slider. Um, so maybe he could become an option maybe as a, a fireman, a guy that you put in early in the game if you need a, a strikeout in the fifth or the sixth inning to get out of the jam. be interested to see what they do with Christian Javier, um, who's going to start the season in the bullpen as the swing guy, the long reliever. Would not be surprised if he shifts into the rotation um, in late April because the Astros, after the first road trip of the season, the Astros will start a stretch where they play 33 games in 34 days. And I could very easily see them going to a six-man rotation at that point. At that point, Christian Javier would slide into the uh, slide into the rotation. But Christian Javier, when he is on, he's one of the best pitchers on the team. He's got some of the best stuff on the team. He showed flashes of it in the playoffs last year. He was unhittable in some stretches of the playoffs last year. But the, what the Astros couldn't do last year, they could not find a way to consistently use him. So I think if they can find a way to maximize Christian Javier as – a long guy as a reliever, and heck, he may pitch himself into a starting role at some point. But I think that's going to be something I'm going to look for the first two or three weeks of the season is how do they find a way to maximize this guy's value? Because, yes, he walks a couple guys too many. Yes, he throws the ball up in the strike zone a lot. He's got that elevated four-seamer that is homer-prone at times. I don't need to remind you about game about game five of the World, of game four of the World Series, excuse me. I don't need to remind you uh, how that ended for Christian Javier. So he can be homer-prone, but the stuff is some of the best in the Astros system. And I think if they find a way to use him, he can also be an X factor. Yeah, for it wasn't until those two homers that I think he'd been scored upon in the postseason. He was just lights out and just picked a tough time to give up a couple of homers. Well, I feel ready for the season. Uh, I feel like you've prepared us all well. It gets underway Thursday night for the Astros as they kick off a nine-game road trip to start the season. Four games in Anaheim against the Angels. Then two games in Arizona sandwiched around uh, between a couple of off days. And they'll have three at Seattle for opening the season at home on Monday. Um, that'll be April 18th, I believe, against the Los Angeles Angels again. So Chandler, thanks for the time. I remind our listeners that they can follow Chandler in the pages of the Houston Chronicle and uh, at Chandler underscore Rome on Twitter. He's got over 35,000 followers now, so you might as well join the masses. Uh, also, you can email him at Chandler.Rome at Cron.com. That concludes this edition of the Texas Sports Nation podcast. For Chandler Rome, I'm Steve Schaefer. Enjoy the start of the 2022 baseball season, and we'll talk to you soon.